Welcome to The Balance. My name is Catlin Tucker, and this podcast is presented by StudySync. Today, my guest is Paul France, who's a National Board Certified Teacher, Literary Specialist, author, and professional development facilitator. He authored the book, Reclaiming Personalized Learning, which is a favorite of mine. So I'm excited to have him on the show today. Welcome to the podcast. I am so excited to get a chance to finally connect. I know I've seen you on Twitter and like heard about your work for so long. So I'd love for you to start by telling us a little bit about your journey in education. Sure. Um, So I started teaching in 2010. Um, I spent 10 years in the classroom. I'm a National Board Certified Teacher. I'm a Literacy Specialist. Um, My first four years in teaching were in a public school. um, And I had this absolutely amazing team um, of teachers that I worked with. We were a four or five looping team. um, And, you know, I love... I loved working with kids. I loved teaching when I got to that first job, but like that team made me in it for life because we just had so much, we had so much fun together. We also, we just like supported each other. We were also like insatiably curious about teaching, you know, (laughs) that like being at work was fun and engaging and stimulating for me. Um, I, I ultimately left my first job, which was really sad, uh, honestly. Um, because I didn't feel safe and comfortable as an out and open gay teacher there. Mm-hmm. Um, not because of my team, um, but because of some decisions the school was making at the time. So um, I, I, I left public school in Chicago, the suburbs of Chicago, and I made my way out to San Francisco, where I, was, I worked for three years um, as part of a personalized learning education technology company and network of micro schools. It was an amazing experience. I opened three schools while I was there. Um, I worked with technologists to build personalized learning tools. Um, It it really, it gave me experience. I probably would not have gotten anywhere else. Um, And it was just a really like inventive space. You know, it was like one of the only organizations that was doing what we were doing. Um, And our, you know, our, our, our goal was to personalize learning using this playlist tool. Um, and at first I thought this was like the panacea. I was like, this is what differentiation is supposed to be, right? Like everyone's supposed to have their own playlist of activities. And um, I was listening to your episode um, on UDL and you mentioned differentiation, how differentiation isn't this like, you know, breaking it down into small groups and stuff. Um, Anyway, so after a couple of years there, I realized like that this playlist tool wasn't actually working, right? It wasn't doing what we, we'd set out to do. And it also wasn't really best for kids. Like we were defining personalization in terms of individualizing the curriculum. Um, so I, I decided to leave there after three years just because I didn't feel like, you know, we were on the right track with personalized learning. And I made my way back to Chicago. I worked um, in an independent school for three years um, where I was... I was like our team lead, which was really great experience for me. I was uh, the director of our assistant teacher program. So I got to actually work with new teachers, which was amazing. And then about a year ago, I left the classroom, um, mostly because I didn't feel safe going back in person with COVID happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was super scary to like take the leap out on, you know, take the leap and start something of my own. But it was something that I'd been wanting to do for a really long time. And um, luckily, I have an amazing supportive husband who was like, you got this, <laughs> you can do this, and I'll put you on my health insurance. <laughs> I was oh, like, you're like, great. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, so that's what I've been doing for the past year. I've been doing some private teaching, some consulting. Um, I wrote my second book, Humanizing Distance Learning. Um, and yeah, I'm just kind of like living this living this self-employed dream. And it's been great. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, so I have to ask, you said you had this amazing teaching team and it was a four or five looping. Explain what that means, a four or five looping. Yeah, so we had our students for two years. So we got them in fourth grade and then- Yay, I had nine and 10th graders for two years, like together as a cohort for two years. And it's the best. It is the period, best period. (laughs) Clap emoji, clap emoji, clap emoji. Like it is- 
So my first class, I mean, I love them so much. You know, when you're in, you, you know, your first class, like always holds that special place in your heart. Well, like I had like that feeling and like they were just the best class. When I got to that school, the teachers who had them the year prior, they're like, they're just the best class. You're going to love them. And I loved them, loved them, had them for two years. The last day of school, you know, like I did the whole like slideshow and gifts and all that kind of stuff. And I cried like a baby when they left. And my one of my teammates across the hall, she was like, Paul, you're you're gonna be fine. Nobody died. Like it's gonna be okay. But I was just like so attached to them, you know, and I still like they're now um in college and some of them, you know, still keep in contact with me. And it's just that's why we do what we do, right? It's like that that kind of those kind of relationships and that really it just makes it made me at the time feel very whole, you know, and it still does. Yeah. Um, so yeah, looping's the best. Okay. That that's that's so interesting. I, I wondered if that's what you meant because very few teachers who I've met have had that experience. And I agree mm-hmm. it was just so special. And just the amount of growth you see when you're with learners for two years is like unreal. And the relationships obviously are so much more deep and I think meaningful after that time together. So, oh, that's neat. So you wrote a book, Reclaiming Personalized Learning. So I'd love for you to define personalized learning for listeners because sometimes I get a a little frustrated that like these terms get thrown around and I'm not sure they're pinned to like real definitions. So what does that mean to you when you're working with teachers? How do you define it? I mean, I'll first emphasize that I think it's, you know, there's room for evolution in the definition. And I don't ever, like I was just working with a school in Massachusetts yesterday or two days ago. And, and I said, you know, like I never want to position myself as like the sole expert in the room on this because, you know, there's a lot of different ways to personalize learning, I think. Um, But my foundational definition is that personalized learning should be a pedagogy for restoring equity and restoring humanity to our classrooms. Um, and, you know, a lot of people ask me, well, why are we reclaiming this term? Who, who are we reclaiming it from? And, um, you know, the, the, the idea of reclaiming personalized learning came from my experience working in Silicon Valley mm-hmm. and seeing the, uh, let's say, the challenges and even the detrimental effects of centering technology in the conversation about personalized learning over our students' humanity. Mm-hmm. And some people, I think, when they first get to know me or they first see some of my work, they think that I'm like anti-tech and I'm totally <laughs> not anti-tech. I love, I love technology. I, I think it's great for the classroom. I just think that we need to be really mindful of how we're using it um, so that we're not just using it for the sake of technology uh, or for, for technology's sake. And that's what I saw in that like hyper tech infused company I worked for in San Francisco mm-hmm. was that it was really more about trying to make that playlist work. And in reality, it was like, wait, the playlist isn't working. This is unsustainable. Like our kids are working in silos. You know, this is not a human-centered pedagogy. This is a tech-centered pedagogy that is actually dehumanizing learning. Mm -hmm. And that's why I came to, that's how I came to this idea of humanizing personalized learning, that it really should be about making sure that all of our learners can grow and evolve into the best versions of themselves through learning. I love that whole concept around personalized learning or personalizing learning because one of my frustrations in the blended learning space is sometimes people will say blended learning and personalized learning, like the two equate each other. And I'm very quick to say blended learning does not equate personalized learning. Blended learning Mm -hmm. creates exciting pathways toward personalization if we pursue those pathways. But early on in the conversation around blended learning, I want to say a decade ago when I wrote my first book, there was so much focus on the personalized part of a blended learning um, experience coming from technology, whether it was adaptive software and online programs. And for me, I felt like that just, that wasn't exciting. That wasn't something I wanted to spend a lot of energy in. I was much more interested in how do we form partnerships with learners to personalize their learning. And I think that's what you talk about in terms of humanizing. Like for me, that really resonates. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it really is all about partnership. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are some things that come up for me when I, when I think about partnership. One is like, 
it kind of goes back to what we were saying about like looping, right? It's like Mm -hmm. the reason that looping works so well is because you can really get to know kids on a human level, Mm -hmm. right? And it, and when you get to know kids on a human level, it, it doesn't, it's not this unidirectional flow of like teacher is giving information and skills to the learner. It truly is like, this is an exchange. I'm going to learn from you and you're going to learn from me too. You know, we're both here to do this work. Um, But I think there's also something about um, the idea of partnership that makes a classroom really sustainable Mm -hmm. because it no longer is the teacher's sole responsibility to be the person who personalizes learning for 20 plus kids, right? Right. And that's something I ran into when I was working in Silicon Valley. I was like, this is not sustainable. I can't do this, you know, mm-hmm. beyond this year. It's just not going to work. Um, and so while partnership does, you know, like help our learners know that we really care about them and like want our classrooms to be places where they can step into their identities and be seen and heard and valued. Partnership is also good for the teacher because it makes our lives and our jobs more sustainable and more fulfilling. Absolutely. And I think one of the things I see in classrooms so often is is that imbalance in who's doing the real work in a classroom, right? And I feel like so often the reason teachers are so exhausted is because they're doing that lion's share of the work, right? And I'm I'm constantly trying to position the learner at the center of the experience. Like they should be doing the work. They should be making the meaning, engaging in discussion, reflecting on their learning, collaborating with their peers. Like, I don't know why teachers feel so much responsibility to do all of that work. We really, it would be so much easier if we could find ways to partner with students and have them do that kind of heavy cognitive lift that that is happening in classrooms. And I think it's kind of frankly impossible to know what every single learner needs somehow magically during your, your time with them if we're not asking them and we're not giving them a voice to say, hey, this is what I think I need. This is what I what I would enjoy more support on or what direction I'd like to run in as a learner, you know, but there often isn't even time in classrooms for those conversations. Absolutely. And I, I think that's, you know, it's, it's systemic pressures. I think mm-hmm. a lot of teachers are really afraid to make mistakes in their classrooms. And I don't think that's their fault. You know, I can identify with that feeling of not wanting to make mistakes. Actually, my again, my first job, that amazing team I was on, I had a really great principal too, for the most part. And she, I remember one day I was trying something. It was like, I was making science centers and it was all simple machines oriented. And, you know, the centers were on a website and whatever, not, I'm not going to go into too much detail. However, she came in while I was trying this thing. It was completely bombing, <laughs> like completely. <laughs> and I, you know, that moment when you're like, oh my gosh, this is the time you came into my classroom. Like, come on. Uh Um, But she walked in and I was like, oh gosh, this is bombing. And I just kind of threw my hands up and I was like, it's bombing. Like, (laughs) this is just bombing right now. You can come in, but this is bombing. And she just kind of laughed and she was like, that's totally fine. This happens sometimes. Let's talk about it later. And so later we talked about it and I said, yeah, I think this worked. I think this didn't work. And it was just like, and that was it. It was like, okay, well, try something different next time. And it was a very low stakes, you know, moment in my professional learning. And it was very productive because I felt safe. I felt like, hey, I can actually, I can try something new and I can be vulnerable and I can be, you know, open with where I am in my practice, especially as a new teacher, right? Right. And that like, I think in some ways set the tone for my career. Um, You know, and I just, I, I think that we need more, we need more experiences like that for new teachers. Um, I was just thinking too, like the work you're doing around UDL, right? Like that is, and you, you mentioned the idea of like ac- um, multiple access points or multiple mm-hmm. entry points, right? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of teachers are convinced that in order to personalize or differentiate, like they need as many activities as there are kids in the classroom, right. <laughs> but there's actually a more sustainable way to think about it, right? Whereas if you build an open-ended task, or an open-ended project where it's like the teacher is just planning one thing, right? I'm planning this one thing, but I'm anticipating all the different types of responses that my kids might have or the questions they might have, you know? So then I, as the teacher, I'm ready to meet those learners where they are, address those things, but I'm only planning one thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm not planning, you know, 20 different activities. And I think that's a really 
it's a hard shift to make because a lot of people aren't used to doing that, but it's also a really powerful shift to make. Absolutely. And it's, I think the, and from my perspective, the hardest part is just releasing the control saying, okay, here's what Mm -hmm. we're working toward. You're going to get to make decisions about the path you walk to get from where you are. And everybody's in a little bit of a different place to where we're going and allow learners to make those really meaningful choices about their path and how they're going to get to that spot that we're all working toward. And I think teachers are really afraid of letting go and afraid that maybe students won't take that responsibility or that decision-making seriously or make good decisions. And I'm kind of like, this is how they work toward becoming an expert learner is because they, yeah, maybe they make a decision and it doesn't lead where they thought it would. And then they recalibrate and they think about what else might I do? And just giving kids the space to kind of engage in that messy work of learning. Sometimes I think it's not happening because it's scary for teachers too. you know, that that loss of control or the shift in control, at least from my perspective. I think that's totally right. And I think there's also this sense of urgency in schools, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think a lot of that relates to the way we measure success in schools, which is often by standard. I mean, I know most teachers probably don't measure their students' success only through standardized tests, but when you look at the system, right, that is the the key metric. And I think it creates this sense of urgency that like when there's a moment of rest or there's a moment of pause or there's a moment of even a couple steps back, you know, we're kind of conditioned to panic a little bit. Like, no, we need to get this done now. We need to learn as quickly as possible, you know? When in reality, I mean, I know for me as an adult learner, you know, there are moments when I'm even like thinking about teaching or I'm writing or something and it's like, I am silent for a while. Like I can't think of what to write. I have, the ideas have to sort of like uh, percolate, simmer in my mind, you know, and then all of a sudden it's like spark and I go yep. and we don't allow our kids to do that a lot in school. It's like we, we kind of are we have this way of thinking that every day needs to be forward progress. And that's just, it just doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. I totally agree. It's in the the quiet moments where for me, like you're describing the creativity and the sparks of imagination and the like, oh, I get it. Like my brain had time to piece it together. And I think you're Mm -hmm. absolutely correct. We spend so much time in this coverage approach. Like we've got to cover all this stuff. And I totally understand why teachers feel that way because of that pressure, um, the standards and standardized testing. But we if we don't ever let the kids take some space to process and come to those moments of realization and aha, then gosh, I just, no wonder so many kids are disillusioned. It's like, it's so overwhelming mentally to be in that space all the time where you're constantly taking in new information, but don't have the space to sit with that new information. I think this is where the conversation about sustainability becomes so important, right? That like when you're going, 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 going all the time, it may seem like it's the it's going to bring you the greatest gains, but and, and it might in the short term, right? Mm-hmm. But what's going to happen is there are going to be diminishing returns, and you know eventually it will become unsustainable and, and crash and burn. <laughs> so when you're working with educators, how like what do you what do you tell them, or how do you help them in terms of strategies so that they understand how to make personalized learning? feel doable, feel sustainable, instead of feeling like this daunting, unrealistic expectation? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different ways, but I think one of the most powerful ones that feels most actionable is learning how to leverage open-ended tasks in the classroom. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I think when people hear open-ended tasks, the first thing they think of is like, oh, it's open-ended, like it can, you know, I don't have to do a lot of planning for that. And you actually do have to do quite a bit of planning. Some of the best professional development I've ever had is um, is lesson study. I'm not sure if you if you're familiar or not, but um, lesson study is like this is this process where you work with a team to design an open ended task. Um, you, you you situate it within a unit of instruction that's you know backwards designed. Mm-hmm. Um, you do research on the topic. Uh, you anticipate all the different responses a student might have to the task. And then you actually do the teaching and you have people in your classroom observing. So it really is this sort of like lab classroom environment. Oh, I love that. Um, It's amazing. It's like, it's just amazing. Um, And you really go deep with one task, you know, like Mm -hmm. relating to what we were just talking about. It's not about like, 
this sense of urgency or like covering a lot of content. It's about like really engaging in a process of inquiry. And so you can understand the content you're teaching at a really, really deep level. Um, but so I think with teachers, right, it's like helping them learn how to create, use open-ended tasks, and then helping them learn how to anticipate student responses and how, um, and how they can respond when students, you know, respond that way in the classroom. And I find that what's the most helpful is just, is just providing structure around it. Mm -hmm. Again, the idea of open-ended, like there's this connotation that it's sort of like willy-nilly, you know, kind of everybody does what they want. Mm -hmm. And I think the the secret, maybe it's not a secret, but like the quiet truth mm -hmm. of open-ended tasks is that like the more structure you build, the the easier it becomes to do, right? Right. Um, and so that's partially, the structure is par partially, you know, creating an open-ended task that that aligns to a standard and then, you know, anticipating the student responses, but also, also it's how you structure your learning block. Right. Um, and so I like to think of personalized learning in terms of three dimensions. I think of it in terms of the whole group, which I call the collective consciousness of the classroom, the small group, which really is, you know, what it sounds like pulling small groups. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third dimension is individualization, um, which I refer to as nurturing the inner dialogue of the child. I don't think of it as like every kid gets their own activity. I think of it as like, that's where the coaching comes in. That's where, you know, we talk to them about their misconceptions, their strengths, their challenges, learning habits, you know, emotional barriers, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, structuring a learning block where you can embrace all three of those dimensions within 45 to 60 minutes, I think also helps you, you know, um, embrace this open-ended type of, you know, teaching. Yeah. And I think your point around the intentionality, that design work is something I think about a lot because, you know, I often say that our role as educators is like, I kind of talk about as an architect, right? Where we're sketching out a blueprint, we're creating a strong structure, but we don't actually do the building. We don't do the meaning making, the construction of knowledge. Like if we do our work really well as an architect of learning experiences, then it really should position the learner to be able to thrive and make choices and direct that learning in a meaningful way. But I think it does really start, like you're saying, with that intentionality around how am I designing this and how am I setting my learners up to be successful within an open-ended task? Absolutely. I am... Um... So in Reclaiming Personalized Learning, I use this analogy of um, like a play structure at a playground. Mm -hmm. You know, when you go to a playground, it's not like every child can choose their own play structure. There's like one play structure or maybe two play structures to play on, right? <laughs> right. But there are lots of possibilities. So some kids might want to like climb to the top. Some kids might want to play tag. Some kids might want to just like sit midway up and read a book. And all of those things are possible on the play structure if it's designed in a way that's inclusive. Um, and so I, I love that analogy because I feel like that's how our classroom should be, right? They should be play structures that, you know, we anticipate what students can do on them, but ultimately there are choices and there are ways for all students to enjoy the play structure or enjoy the classroom and get something meaningful out of it. Oh my gosh. I love that analogy. Just imagine, I can imagine a playground full of kids who are all doing totally different things on the play structure. They see the play structure as different kinds of opportunities. And I love the idea of making a classroom like a play structure. That's such a great analogy. So, okay, we've had a crazy year. Um, and there's so much yes. conversation right now about, okay, what is school going to look like next year? What are we going to do about all this learning loss? Which by the way, I'm super stressed is going to translate into even more of like a coverage mentality. In fact, Jay McTie wrote a really great article about this where he's, he was saying like that desire to try to like cover more faster, um, instead of really kind of going deeper um, is a, is he's nervous that's going to happen. He sees that as problematic. And I was reading his article and I was like, yes, I do not want teachers to feel like, well, we just have to jam through more faster and like catch learners up because I don't think that works. Um, instead, I think 
the kind of humanizing approach or humanized approach to personalized learning might be the best way to think about transitioning kids who've had a range of different experiences over the last 16 to 18 months back into classrooms. So given the challenges of the last year and a half, how do you see personalized learning helping to kind of ease this transition into classrooms for students um, who, you know, some of them maybe haven't really connected with a learning community or an educator very much in this time away from a physical classroom? Yeah, I mean, I think if we humanize personalization, it could be transformational. I think if we dehumanize personalization, we could end up with what you said, right? This like coverage mentality where we're trying to accelerate learning or, and I, I don't know if you're seeing this too, but I, I'm seeing that people, the term learning loss was sort of amplified for a while. And then people were like, ew, we don't like that word. We don't like learning loss. And now people are sort of rebranding it as learning recovery or learning acceleration. And right. I, I don't know, I think we all need to start from this, this mindset that is like, all three of those terms are deficit-based. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter like that the connotation is slightly different. All three of those terms are deficit-based because we are either trying to accelerate because we feel like we slowed down too much. Mm -hmm. We're trying to recover something that we feel like has been lost or just learning lost. We feel like we're, you know, we're, we're looking at it in terms of deficits. So I think if we humanize personalization, it could be very transformational, but it, it necessitates um a mind, a mindset shift, right? It's, mm -hmm. it can't be about when we get into the classroom in the fall, like, you know, accelerating learning, you know, hitting the ground running. It shouldn't be that mentality. It really should be healing. Mm -hmm. And this was something I spoke with the school I mentioned or the district I mentioned in Massachusetts the other day, like, how can we empathize with our stakeholders in our schools to really center healing? And if, if we do that, right, if you really think from the student perspective, from the parent perspective, from your colleagues' perspectives, from the administrators' perspectives, right? If we start the year with learning loss, we are going to generate panic and anxiety yep. within everybody. Atop the panic and anxiety that came from, you know, over a year of living through a pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think one of the, I mean, one place to start could be talking about what it means to teach in a vulnerable way, you know, in a way that like lets go of the urgency and let's go of the perfectionism that is so ingrained into us as teachers. And that's so hard to do because, you know, there are sometimes some really tangible consequences for not having that sense of urgency. Um, so I, I think that's one place to start, right? It's like, what does healing look like for me and my students? And what might it look like for me to take even just one step towards a more vulnerable teaching style where I allow things to just kind of happen um, happen as they will happen in the classroom and, and really like center my students' identities, their experiences, like actually get on that level with them and, you know, let them bring in their experiences from the last year, let them talk about them, mm -hmm. you know, ask them what they learned from living through a pandemic. There are strengths there, right? Mm -hmm. I think if we start there, I don't, I don't think that we'll, you know, solve all the problems of education, but I think it's a good way to, you know, at least start this new school year. Yeah. And I think after so much isolation and so much, you know, for some learners, loss and trauma, there has to be a focus on that relationship building, that connection between teacher and learner. Because if we hit the ground running and we're thinking, well, we just have to get through so much because they're so behind they're ultimately not going to feel seen or valued. Their experience isn't going to play an important role in this learning community. And that's, I think that's a huge mistake. I think what, what our kids are going to need when they come back to classrooms is that teacher who wants to connect with him, with them, who wants to understand their experience and figure out how to make this space feel relevant and safe and engaging. I absolutely agree. And I think too, it's like, you know, we can do that and be really good teachers at the same time, or, and I should say, and, you know, emphasize academics at the same time. Mm -hmm. I think this idea of designing open-ended tasks, right, mm -hmm. really aligns with that idea of human connection. And like, you mentioned the word isolation too. And I think that that's something, isolation is something that I see in dehumanizing 
forms of personalization. It's like every kid's on their own island working on something different. Like we don't want that. Right. We know that a sense of belonging is central to equity, right? Yes. People need to kids need to feel like they're connected to their peers. And so if we start the year with this healing mindset, with this vulner vulnerable mindset, right? And then we take a risk on something like open-ended tasks and allow kids to connect with one another over or through rigorous academic tasks, like we might be able to get the best of both worlds, you know, mm -hmm. without centering learning loss. Right. So we keep talking about humanized personalization versus dehumanized personalization. And you wrote a phenomenal article in Ed Surge where you kind of compare the two. So for anybody who's like mm -hmm. maybe feeling like this distinction's a little murky, can you kind of talk about the difference between humanized personalization and that dehumanized personalization? Sure. So I mean, to humanize means to become more human as one grows and learns. And that's, a, you know, Paulo Freire, Pedagogy of the Oppressed term. And the opposite is really, you know, to, to dehumanize really just means the opposite. It's like you become less human as you experience something, whether it's in schools or whether it's in the out in the real world. Mm -hmm. um, I, I personally think that dehumanization is rampant in our schools. Um, and I think this is especially um, those who have felt marginalization, mm -hmm. I think would connect with this most, you know, most viscerally, um, whether it's we're talking about queer folks or neurodivergent learners or people of color, like um, as, as a gay man, you know, I know what it's like to feel less human going into a school. Um, and that really guides me, like it's guided me for a long time, ever since my first, my first experience and I've mentioned all the great things about my first school. Um, I haven't talked a lot about the experiences I've had with homophobia in schools. Um, but so when you think about humanization and dehumanization, right? Like humanization allows us to step into our full identities and become more human as we learn and grow. And dehumanization does just the opposite. And so I think you can look at that in the context of personalization, right? When we center technology, when we center test scores, when we use assessment to compare and categorize, um, when we um, when we think of teaching as like disseminating curriculum, covering content, yep. filling our students with skills, you know, like that is not actually thinking about the human being. It's not centering the human being. It's not to say that academics aren't, shouldn't be focused on. It's not to say that we can't use assessment, right? To like actually measure what our kids are learning. It's just about who and what we're actually putting front and center. So when I think of humanizing personalization, I think of it as, you know, a technology tool is not powering personalization in my classrooms. The human beings are powering personalization through partnership, through knowing one another on a human level. You know, I think about the idea of, of three-dimensional teaching where you are building a collective consciousness so that people feel, all the kids feel and the teachers feel connected to something bigger than them. But you're also using that third dimension where you're conferencing with kids and actually talking with them one-on-one. -on -one. You know, you're using assessment in a humanizing way. It's not about the number you got correct. Instead, it's about what are your strengths? What are your challenges? And what strategies can I help you build mm -hmm. to overcome those challenges? So it really is just like a, when I think of humanization versus dehumanization, it's like a repositioning and a reprioritizing, always coming back to that idea of, am I centering the human beings and their lived experiences in my classroom? Um, and if, if you ever have doubt, like, oh, I might not be doing that, like, that's a good time to reflect mm -hmm. and ask yourself, well, what could I do to, you know, make more progress towards centering my students and their humanity? I love that. I I have so obviously as somebody in the blended learning space, I I'm so excited about technology and the power of technology, but it's almost like honestly, my excitement about technology is the fact that it can free us to put students at the center. It can free us to spend more time in that human side of teaching that is really what makes this job so incredibly rewarding. And so for me, you know, when I walk into classrooms and, you know, everybody's on a computer most of the period with headphones on, I'm like, ah, are we using tech to yeah. isolate learners? 
why aren't we putting the same focus on using tech to allow learners to drive their learning in concert with this beautiful community of people who are in this room together? <laughs> oh, it's so challenging. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, I like to think of it as, I call it ed tech minimalism. Um, <laughs> I like the term minimalism because I think it like really aligns with sustainability. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, you're only using tech when you really feel like it's going to add some sort of value. And I use I use four questions um, when I'm either when I'm working with teachers or just thinking about my own practice. I ask myself, is this technology minimizing complexity? Because that's like at a base level, that's what a lot of technology does, right? Like our phones are so powerful because they minimize the complexity of our very complicated lives. <laughs> I ask myself, does the technology maximize individual power and potential, does it reimagine learning? And the fourth and most important one that I think we can all align on after a, a year of isolation is, is this technology preserving or enhancing human connection in the classroom? Like what you just described mm -hmm. with everyone's on a computer and their headphones are on, <laughs> that is chipping away at human connection. And when we leverage web-based technologies too, too much, that, that's what happens, right? We do chip away at human connection in the classroom. And I think, especially now, we need to be hyper aware of that. I could not agree more. And I love that you use this word sustainability. I've said for a long time, I feel like this is a word we need to use more in education because so much of this work teachers do and the way that we do it is I don't feel sustainable and why, you know, probably there's a whole podcast right now where we're talking about, you know, called the balance because I feel like balance is so hard to even imagine because this job is so multifaceted and demanding. And I think a lot of the traditional workflows create a lot of unsustainable practices and a lot of imbalance. And I know you're currently researching for a new book it's coming out spring 2023 focused on sustainable teaching. So when I think about the word sustainability, I want I want to kind of reimagine those workflows and and talk about the un kind of healthy imbalances that exist in teachers' lives. So I'm curious about your project. I would love for you to tell us about your sustainable research project and what inspired you to kind of pursue this and and start work on this book. Yeah, um, you know, I mean, I think we can all agree that a lot of what we're asked to do in teaching is unsustainable. Mm -hmm. And I think that it, through through what I've learned so far, so I've had, oh, now I'm at over 100 people have filled out the form. I've got teachers from 44, 43 states as of this morning, I think. Um, I've taught, I've interviewed 20 teachers now. Like what keeps coming through to me is that there is this tension between what can I do as an individual to make my job more sustainable? And then what sorts of systemic constraints are there that we as a collective need to be talking more about so that our jobs can be more sustainable as well? Mm -hmm. So I agree with you 100% on the workflow idea. And I and and that was actually kind of the initial um, inspiration for it. Like I thought about my experience in personalized learning. And, you know, I, again, to go back to this idea of open-ended tasks, right? That's one example of what I think is a really sustainable practice that is also a really high-quality teaching practice, right? But when I talk sustainability, I'm not saying, like, I don't for one second want to communicate, like, take some stuff off your plate, but <laughs> it, and it doesn't matter if it harms kids along the way. Like, of course, we want to make sure that, like, the sustainable practices are also high-quality practices, right? Right. Um, so part of the inspiration was that, like, in what ways can we use high quality teaching in a way that doesn't burn teachers out? Mm -hmm. But I'm also leveraging my own experiences as a teacher. You know, like my first job I worked in, I could not sustain myself in that job without, I could not sustain myself in that job because I was not able to bring my full identity into the classroom. It wasn't a safe place for me. I think that's a really important part of sustainability that we need to talk about. In my second job, working in, you know, Silicon Valley, working towards this, you know, vision of digitally driven personalization, mm -hmm. the idea of making as many curricula as there are kids in the class, it's not sustainable, right? right. There are ways to personalize that, that are sustainable for teachers and best for kids. And then in my last job, you know, um, the reason that I ended up leaving was because I didn't feel like our teachers, the teachers' voices were being heard or really even considered in 
decisions about returning to school, you know, in September of 2020. Um, and so all of these things, you know, it, it's really complex. And as I, as I talk to more teachers, I'm like, whoa, what did I get myself into in this project? <laughs> like, it's super, super complex. But what I'm also hearing is like, people are saying, thank you for talking about this. We don't talk about this enough. And I think that in some ways, we've just sort of come to accept that our jobs are unsustainable and that we just, it just is the way it, it, it just is the way it is. And it's always going to be that way. And, and I'm of the mindset that, you know, I don't think it's an easy problem to fix. I don't think it'll be fixed overnight. It may not even be fixed over the next decade, but it's certainly not going to be fixed if we don't start talking about it. And so that's my intention with the, with the project is to like talk to as many people as possible, amplify teacher voices in the process and create a vision for what sustainable teaching could look like in hopes that people can see small changes they can make in their classrooms, but also have conversations about the larger systemic constraints that we're all under. Yeah, it's so systemic kind of um, challenges that are the hardest uh, for a teacher to do a lot about. So I do agree like that conversation yep. and just raising awareness and shining a light on like, hey, we shouldn't be in this profession just head down waiting for summer to like recover because we have pushed ourselves so far beyond the limits of what is probably healthy mentally, physically, emotionally. But for me, a lot of the work that I do when working with teachers is about those, like you said, that in, those incremental things that you can do that have a big impact on that, that balance, that sustainability in your practice. So whether that is, okay, let's stop always using that whole group model where you're quite frankly going to spend a lot of time at the front of the room. You're going to do a lot of talking. You're going to be orchestrating the lesson. And let's figure out how to lean on different instructional models and approaches that allow you to you know, spend time supporting kids as they're working, giving focused, actionable feedback on a small section of their work in class, as opposed to taking that all home. Or let's take a critical eye to like, what are you grading and why are you grading that? And is it really right. going to result in like kids growth and, you know, improvement? Because I worry that a lot of the, the unsustainable practices, they're not actually what's best for kids. Like grading everything a kid touches, I don't think that's best for kids. I think, I think you know, the communication with parents is really hard to sustain. Like as a secondary teacher, when you have 150 plus families. So mm. if you're a secondary teacher, if your kids are tweens and teens, like they have the ability to update their own parents about their progress. So how do you make that something that they own in terms of a conversation they're regularly having with their parents? So I almost feel like I come from the the place of maybe by doing less, trying to not trying to grade everything, not trying to be the only person owning conversations about progress, that we can actually give kids more and a higher quality experience. And that's something that I think it, it's sometimes it's a hard sell when I work with teachers because they feel like, no, that's my job. And I'm like, why is that your job? Why do you have to do it that way? Right. Yeah. And I'm also just like, where's the joy? Right. You know, it's like <laughs> not in, in, in some of the <laughs> right. Well, I, in some of the moments where I have experienced the most joy is when like I stand back and I'm like, whoa, everyone is like making their own choices right now and super engaged and like this group's having a conversation about what we discussed in the mini lesson over here and like mm. or those moments where i can sit down at my kidney table and just talk with a child and like get to know them like those are the moments where i'm like this is why i do this this is what i love mm -hmm. and i like to think that sustainability is not only a path for like us to you know leverage more leverage high quality instruction like do what's best for kids, do what's best for ourselves, but also just a way for us to reconnect with why we love, why we, do, why we love teaching as much as we love it, right? Like mm -hmm. people, you don't go into teaching for the money. You just don't do it. You know, <laughs> you go into it because you want to do it. Right. And that's something that's actually come through in the interview so far too, is this idea of like mastery and autonomy and just like feeling like you're doing a good job with, with, you know, that is sustaining in a way when you feel like you're, you're doing something good and you're making progress. And I think we all deserve to have more space in our lives and in our classrooms to just feel good about the work that we're doing. Yeah. And your your comment about that scene of watching the kids do it. It's it's funny. I I would end my year with my high school students and the final unit, I said, here are our target standards. You design it. 
So we know we have mm. to like show mastery of these four standards. What is it that you want to do? How do you want to break up this reading? What, when do you want to have discussions? What are they going to look like? What performance tasks are going to help you to demonstrate mastery of these things? And they spent almost four days planning their units. And I'm not going to lie, Paul, every year, my favorite units were their units, not my units, their units, because there is like, as soon as I got out of the way and just let them, and obviously you're not going to start the year that way, but if I had done my job in the way that I hoped to, I would have positioned them to be successful in that moment. And they always just blew my mind. You know, kids are so capable. It's really just magical. I know. It's, it's super cool. And you said this in the UDL podcast too, or your episode, UDL episode, where it's like, you, of course, you can't expect them to do that in the beginning of the year because part of what we do as teachers is teaching them how to make choices, mm-hmm. right? And it's like when you do that hard work of teaching them how to make choices, they re- will really surprise you later on. Totally. So I always end by inviting my guests to share a tip or a strategy or a routine, something they've incorporated into their lives to make, whether it's personal or professional, it can be either, to just create more balance. So is there anything you've done that's helped you to create more balance in your personal or professional life that you want to share with listeners? Yeah, I mean, it's been harder to find that balance just being self-employed over the past year, but Mm -hmm. I am... I try to lean into, (laughs) I try to like, you know, accept myself as I am and lean into some of my strengths. And I am, I am like a hardcore Virgo, like (laughs) type A. I like, I like my calendar. Like I like things in their boxes. I I like to be organized. Yep. Um, And I learned through like looking at my calendar. I'm like, oh, like I have, I'm really good at scheduling all of my work (laughs) things. And I'm really good at keeping all of that, like, you know, under wraps. And I'm like, why don't I do this for myself? You know, like, why don't I plan my personal things that are just about like mm-hmm. me time into my calendar? So I've started doing that and just like blocking out time. Like, this is my time to like take the dogs for a walk. This is my time to like just chill and rest. This is my time to like read a book that I want to read. Mm-hmm. And by actually putting it in my calendar, like if it if it's not on my calendar, it doesn't really exist right. in my life. Right. And so like, yeah. So like putting those things I love on my calendar it's like it appeals to my virgo type a side and and then it exists for me and i think it's something small you can do for yourself right because you're actually showing yourself oh no this is actually really important that i do this and then i take that time for me because i know for me if i don't then it really it compounds you know i really start to feel it in my body i i i feel terrible right if i don't actually take that time for myself so that's my one thing Put in your calendar. Yeah. And don't feel guilty about putting it in your calendar. Because when I started doing this, I felt a little like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm blocking out this day. Or I can't believe I'm taking myself off the calendar for like two weeks. Mm -hmm. But then when I was in it, I was just like, I'm so glad I did this. And half the time it's in those moments where then I'm like my most creative self. And I'm like, you have to do this because that's where your creativity like blossoms. But I'm like you, super type A. I love a good list. I live and die by my calendar. (laughs) So that's that's a really great tip. I want to thank you so much for joining me. This was so much fun. I'm so glad we got to connect. And I'm really glad that this will be an episode that kind of launches right before teachers go back so they can be thinking about these things as they prepare for the new school year. So thank you so much for spending time with me. Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. a lot of aspects of this conversation with Paul that I know are going to stay with me long after today. And I think maybe the most poignant is this idea of 
seeing personalized learning as an opportunity to restore equity and humanity to classrooms. And I loved Paul's statement that humanization allows students to step into their full identities as they grow and learn, which is so exciting to be thinking about teaching and learning in that way and leveraging personalized learning to make that possible. Because for so long, I really did hear personalized learning spoken about in the context of computer programs and adaptive software. And there wasn't a lot of conversation about the humanity and and even equity, really. So that for me was a real takeaway from this conversation. And I, I will say that the Four questions Paul suggested that educators consider when they use technology is something I will definitely be repeating when I support teachers. So he encouraged teachers to ask, number one, is technology minimizing complexity? Two, does technology maximize individual power and potential? Three, does it reimagine learning? And four, is the technology preserving and enhancing human connection? If those questions were at the forefront of our minds as we designed learning experiences, I think the result could be incredibly powerful. I want to end the show with a call to action. So Paul is doing research, as he said, to shine some light on this very complex profession and these issues around sustainability. So please share your thoughts. I am going to include the link to his form in the show notes, and we would love to hear from you so we can keep this conversation going. Thank you to StudySync for producing and sponsoring this podcast. StudySync is committed to helping teachers find balance in their lives by providing them with a robust multimedia ELA platform that simplifies lesson planning, automatically differentiates tasks for learners at different skill levels and language proficiencies, and blends online and offline engagement to help students develop as thinkers, readers, writers, and speakers. StudySync's most recently released product, Sync Blast, expands the company's focus to include engaging supplemental digital inquiry solutions for social studies and science classrooms. Visit studysync.com for more info or follow the link in the show notes.